Are we ready? No. I'll never be ready. That's You'll never be ready. Okay, start. understood. Now. Understood. We can figure something else out. <laughs> I put a spell on you. I put a spell on you. Okay. Um, welcome to this episode of the Movie Overload podcast. I don't even know what episode number we're at. We're in the 50s. Uh, 56? 57. 56. 53. 57. 53. We're, we're, we're one of the 50s, one of those. and we're it's talking about uh, the 1984 film Stranger Than Paradise, uh, a Jim Jarmusch film uh, in black and white, That's uh, labeled as an absurdist deadpan comedy film, which... It's Who interesting. Labels? What? Odd. <laughs> Who absurdist deadpan? I, I would not do it. As I don't know that it's so much a, absurd as, as it is deadpan. It's certainly it's deadpan. deadpan. Yeah, sure. It's a it's it's a real like vibey '80s movie. You know, like pre-Clerks, but the type of thing where it's just a bunch of like people being like regular people, just vibing, and and then the movie is just that. They're misfits in the sense that they are not movie like Hollywood characters, but in, in reality, they're not so much misfit like as they are just people. And that's what's nice about Jim Jarmusch movies is I feel like he um, has has real people, um, people mm-hmm. not only like a lot of people who aren't really actors, but also people who are like generally of the culture or of the socioeconomic status or or whatnot of of the people that their their characters are are playing and so there's always this this feeling of like despite the fact that they're comedic and deadpan and you know you could sort of say artsy in, in their own way um that they're sort of portraying truth a little bit better than a lot of other well definitely do. yeah i was just thinking back to like the fact a bunch of directors try and like have more progressive themes in their work or like have more diverse casts or touch on subjects relating to other cultures they aren't as familiar with. But I don't think I've ever seen like a straight white director who just <laughs> is able to like people don't really have problems with Jim the representation because mm. Jim Jarmusch movies just kind of work. Like, they just get it right, and they've been getting it right since the 80s, and it's the whole thing. kind of wild. Like, there's no excuse. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I, it, a lot of it, I think, has to do with how much more collaborative he is as a filmmaker. Like, he he's mm-hmm. willing to just listen to people and let, he, like, hires people who actually know the things that he doesn't. And allows them to actually have creative leverage so that they can make sure that it's not terribly, horribly offensive or, like, off-putting to people. And I'm sure, like, other directors can do it better, but, like, everyone now, now in, like, the 2020s, I think most directors are wanting to at least have the illusion of that sort of, like, progressive diverse like multicultural thing in all of their films like disney markets all of their films off of that sort of thing but they don't it's just this like facade of Mm -hmm. the image that people are constantly like critiquing for being just so tone deaf and so 
just out of their league and their zone mm. and so many things. It's so it's so absurdly performative, and it's interesting mm. how, yeah, there, there's nothing about Jarmusch films that feel performative in that way, right? Like you think of something like Night on Earth, uh, which takes place in um, five different locations and has then therefore five different crews yeah um for each location mm-hmm. and you know is is all people who are working in those countries and uh is in all four different languages and it's not like he spoke all of those languages either so the mm-hmm. the degree to which the collaborative like um i don't know process that he uses is present and that's it's like it's obvious like it, it's totally there and there's never this point in which you're like is he really respecting this culture or that culture is, is the thing like in uh, in um dead man there's not a lot of like uh, is he doing something kind of and eh, kind of problematic with the native american representation or you know like it, it's just always he just always nails it so well and you never really think about it which is such a big difference. And I think that's something as well that I, I really appreciate in like certain kinds of, of feminist movies that have been coming out nowadays where you're like, ah, that's not performatively feminist. It's not that scene from Endgame. It's just casually feminist. Yeah, like, like we all should be. I love that scene in Taylor Swift's Endgame music video where they're just on the yacht <laughs> with the Migos and ah, it's great. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. Okay, well, that was a fun introduction to the podcast that is this podcast, where we have people who have names and are things. Uh, Yes, people are things. My name is the pineapple of your soul. Whoa, that's crazy. And my name is the pineapple of someone else's soul. I'm just Hunter, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) And we are three friends who are going through the history of movies from a trip to the moon in Parasite and everything in between, Uh, except for Woody Allen, because fuck Woody Allen, uh, to trace the roots of cinema history, catch up on some stuff that we've always heard was good uh, and never really got around to, or gush on about some stuff that we've liked for a long time that we don't think enough people talk about. So (laughs) this week, and now we've hit my third favorite uh, director on the list. We have, we did Charlie Chaplin. We did Akira Kurosawa. And now we're here at Jim Jarmusch and I can finally rest easy. Yes. The, the good old, the Holy Trinity indie dude of them all who who makes the movie and has the time uh yeah this is fun uh do you have a specific thing that you would like to go on about jim jarmusch before we head into the plot other than the one we just did yeah i mean i mean yeah our our cold open (laughs) it was certainly maybe one of my favorite things about him i would say that like uh if you try one of his movies for example if you're watching along and you tried this movie and it you weren't sure that it really worked for you 
you can absolutely try other ones because they're all very different. He he's not Wes Anderson. He's not making the same movie with a bunch of different uh, it, like you know uh, set designs. He, he's making very very different things with very different casts and very different people. And um, yeah, I, I'd say he. The only has unifying phases. thing is that they're all weirdly deadpan in their own way. Though that can even mm-hmm. sort of change. Yeah, the style of deadpan changes. Because, like, Patterson and this are different. They're very different styles of deadpan. Like, Patterson is really, I think, like, very comfortable. Like, it's a movie mm-hmm. about everyday life that, like, talks a lot about um, the short poems guy. And that's, like, the whole vibe of the movie. You know? the William Carlos Williams. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the person whose name I only remember when I think about Patterson. Uh, but also, he has those v- movies, and then he has weird, fun genre movies, like uh, Dead Man, the weird western where it's mostly like an existential drug trip of a thing uh, that is still very deadpan, and Ghost Dog, which is... Uh, Pigeon Batman versus the cartoon mafia who <laughs> don't have money anymore. Uh, Pigeon Samurai Batman. Yeah, Please. it's awesome. and uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, which is probably my favorite film of his, which is uh, hipster vampires played by uh, Loki and uh, the bald person from Doctor <laughs> Strange uh, going off and like geeking out about stuff that they like and why they like being alive and then it's just kind of a movie <laughs> it's I a fun time or, or even the most recent one which is essentially like something like night of the living dead but um if it was meta it is i guess a so bad it's good movie made on purpose and i think it's the only one that has actually succeeded in that goal there's a yeah. a running joke my favorite running joke possibly in any movie is that the theme song of the movie is canonically the only song that is ever heard within the movie. And it plays like 12 times and it's a, not a good song. <laughs> and everybody knows it. And everyone knows it. And they like <laughs> yeah. explicitly say, oh, this, this is just like the theme song. The yeah, dead don't die. The dead don't die. Yeah. Uh, give that movie another chance. It was marketed really unforgivably. Uh, but yeah. I think it it has an audience that if it sounds like something you might vibe with, give it a chance. But this week... The marketing we are... was about as bad as any Guillermo del Toro movie. Except for the new one, uh, which makes me afraid because this is the first time I've seen a trailer for one of his movies. And I'm like, that looks good. Oh, shit. It's going to suck, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> his trailers always suck. <laughs> and if he gets like one good trailer, I'm like, what if it's bad this time? Maybe that's the sign. Hey. Even even the bad ones can still be kind of fun, right? Uh, they can. Yeah, I'm I mean, looking for it. I, I, I wouldn't seen, advise Mimic. I've not seen all of them, so I can't really say. But it's going to be fun. Oh, well. It, it has a stacked cast. Yeah. It has, it has a high budget. It mm. has all of the bells and whistles. <laughs> Maybe and this week we're talking about a movie I, that has absolutely none of that. Literally That's none of that. True. It doesn't even have color. It doesn't nope. get out of... Um, it's like one step above sixteen millimeter. What? What is that? Uh, I do not know. 
35 millimeter? 17 millimeter. <laughs> Is it 35? It might be 35. I should yeah, look it up. Sure. But anyway, uh, it looks slightly marginally better than his uh, student film. Yeah. It had a bu- it had a budget of 100,000 US dollars. It also so. has very little like movement. I think every scene in the movie is explicitly a single shot. Yeah. yeah. Not that mm-hmm. they're like really long scenes. It's not like impressive long takes and you're like, "Oh, that's why this is remembered." No, this is like indie cinema, like quintessential beginnings of American independent cinema. Just a bloke some some friends a camera and go uh i i so when i went through this movie this time i'd seen it before because a good friend maker of the podcast list uh had uh a real phase with this movie and i love <laughs> jim jarmish movies but this movie was not on my on my wavelength at all <laughs> And I watched Ooh. it this time with the commentary, and gosh darn it, did it work for me this time. I mean, it, it it took away some of the slowness of the movie. It's a slow movie. There isn't that much happening. It's not like really witty dialogue happening all the time or something. Mm-hmm. But when you hear about like how this got made, Jim Jarmusch uh, was like, kind of buds with Wim Wenders who just had a bunch of like film stock left over from shooting something and just handed it to mm. him and Jim Jarmish was like okay this is going to be my restraint I'm going to try and make a movie it wound up being like the first 30 minutes or so of Stranger Than Paradise the sections where they're still in the apartment building before they go on the, the road trip the section called The New World I think yeah mm-hmm. and uh it w- was like a short film. They toured it around. They were able to get more funding, and they were able to finish it. Uh, and then, yep. it, and then it blew up, and kind of uh, gave Jim Jarmusch creative freedom going forward to be able to be like, "Hey, I have some street cred. Uh, hey, you know, the RZA want to want to do the soundtrack for a movie for me? Like, yeah. <laughs> you can get to that point." Uh, it so, did also win the. Um, like the debut film award thing at Cannes. At Cannes, yeah. When it came out, yeah. Hmm. And so it's like, I mean, it it was not only well-received and financially successful and everything like that, but it it had both audience and critical success, which is worth noting, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Jim Jarmusch was actually talking about in the commentary how uh, he wanted to dress all of the characters in like kind of schlubby clothing, <laughs> but when the film took off in Japan, a company actually launched a line of clothes that mimicked the style in Stranger yes. Than Paradise to sell in Japan because it was trendy wow. now because yeah. the movie like took off. Huh. That's so great. That's crazy. Yeah, like one of the top reviews that I always see on Letterboxd when I scroll through it is, is somebody saying it like almost convinced him to buy a yeah. fedora or something. And it's like, <laughs> it's I the mean, movie wow. that almost convinces you to buy that fedora before it you really realize does. that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. Uh, whenever somebody's like, tells me like, they're like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really wear hats. I guess like a fedora is really like <laughs> my style. And I'm oh, like, yeah. 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 Okay. If a fedora's your style, you don't have style. 
it's like you can watch it in this movie and not cringe but like you you can't just wear one on the street now you know well yeah but even in this movie like the characters are supposed to be like kind of dirt bags like they're yeah. just scraping by they mostly make money through like doing odd jobs and betting on the ponies and stuff cheating at card games yeah <laughs> card games ponies yeah not on dogs you not know. on dogs no you, you never bet yeah. on dogs and like so mm. so we have this movie so the the plot this is a a really plot light movie like i think in the commentary jim jarmish took offense to people saying that the movie didn't have a plot mm. uh yeah but, it definitely has one it has one it's just well it's just not the main point yeah, it, it's uh, our what's her name? I I don't remember any of the names of people in any movie ever, uh, and so the the one that arrives on the plane that some someone Eva. comes to America. Yes, Eva. Eva. What was name? Eva. Or Eva. Eva or something. Eva. I thought they said it. Yes. It's Eva, it's Willie, and it's Eddie. That's that's our trio. And so Eva comes to America, right? And decides to bunk in with her cousin? Nephew? Yes. Her cousin. Cousin. Uh and th- they uh they they sit there, they they argue, they watch TV. She buys uh, some cigarettes at the store, and they kind of start getting on a bit more. Uh, but you know, we get some we get some good music as she's coming in. That's fun. The fun. She loves that one song, the the screaming Jay Hawkins song. I put a spell on you, which interestingly <laughs> enough, you know, with the way that that Jim Jarmusch is, of course. There's got to be a later film with Screaming Jay Hawkins on it, and and so Screaming Jay Hawkins has an actual part in Mystery Train, hmm. which he mm. makes a few years nice. after this. So that's pretty fun, and it's it's a fun time. It's a great song. It's 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 a really great moment. Honestly, I'd say it's probably like one of the standout moments in like the first short film that brings a lot of energy to it, like. The structure of the movie, I think, is notable because I found it really off-putting the first time, but I think that's kind of what makes it unique, too. It's a series of single shots interspersed with, like, like solid, like, 10-second black frames of silence mm-hmm. in between each, which Jarmusch described as giving space to meditate on the last image. Uh, but it it gives it just this, it gives a really weird feel mm-hmm. as, as a movie. For me, it it feels like you're. I don't know. I don't. I guess we're of a bit of a younger generation, so that's not something we're fully familiar with. But have you ever gone through looking at like vacation slides, like with your family, you're like the right. physical ones, and like. It totally has that vibe. It, it kind of feels like that. Like you're mm-hmm. seeing these little moments and then there's a click and then you're on to the mm-hmm. next one and you're just all sitting there in that room sort of 
silently, like taking in these specific moments that have been laid out for you. And maybe not all of them are particularly meaningful or matter, but they're the ones that got, you know, they're the ones that they, those are the pictures they took sort of this idea, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's so cool. And like the basic, basic structure of the movie, we have the original short film, which basically just takes place in the apartment. Uh, and we meet the three characters and they just kind of like talk and, and vibe. And then, uh, Ava leaves and then we cut to like, uh, a year later, three years later, and time jump. It they they decide uh, the boys decide to go on the road trip, and then they pick up Ava along the way, and they make their way down to Florida. And the way this movie was shot, they shot the original short film first, then they shot the stuff in Florida, and then they did all the pickup stuff of them shooting in the car. Huh. And that makes interesting. Yeah, it's. Like that, so the house that they visit, the their aunt's house, I think their like great aunt or something, mm-hmm. was just something a woman's like that. house yeah. that they found that was nice, uh, and they're just like this is nice, and so they like paid her a bit to use it for like a day, Jeez. and they shot everything in a day, and they just like found a a grandma who uh, seemed to have like the right energy. Uh, and they were just like, Hey, you're the aunt here. You're in the movie. Uh, <laughs> uh it's, yeah. that works. Yeah. It, it really does just give, give you all of those vibes of like awkward, distant family interactions. Mm-hmm. If, if it feels like being back on, um, being back on the East coast for me, mm-hmm. which is where, mm-hmm where all my sort of distant relatives that will go out to visit are or whatever. And you just kind of sitting there on a couch or whatever. And I don't know. It's like being back in New Jersey. Yeah. And I think this movie really captures is able to capture the energy that I, that they were going for because in the commentary, when Jim Jarmusch was talking about like what he was thinking around this movie, he's talking about just, moving from his small town to new york and just being enveloped in the music scene and everyone having this sense that like everything that everything that could be accomplished had already been accomplished so people aren't making art with any idea of like how they're gonna do it or like what's gonna happen they are just trying to figure out how to get their emotions out of themselves through art and through Mm -hmm. this and so you have a bunch of bands that are just just going off knowing like three bar chords and being like, yeah, we're just going to play and we're going to get what we have to say out there. And the, I, I looking at this movie from the 2020s, it almost feels a bit apocalyptic to me, mm-hmm. like listless and wandering mm-hmm. and like people just sitting at the edge of the world and they're, they, they have no prospects. They have no aspirations. They're just, Figuring out how to survive and make life worth living. Dang, me too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like that's it's kind so of what I picked up on this time. It, it, it's hmm. the sign of the times. We got we got that. It, it's it's so weird that 
it, it's been feeling like the world's been ending for at least the last half century, if not for all of time. Yeah. Eh, probably all of time, I guess. Which which makes it Doesn't so make hard when you're like, but it really feels like it's happening this time. Yeah. <laughs> it's always happening. Every time. Uh, but, what, was there know. anything that you were particularly picking up on, Hunter? going through the movie like did you like it that's the first question did yeah. you did you like this movie yeah it's fun i just like that the, the people in it are fun and they talk to each other and they're pals and they have a good time together eddie's iconic <laughs> they have some stressful moments but mostly they have a good time together mm-hmm. yeah the way it ends is a little bit like yeah it has a very interesting loose. ending yeah, yeah. It ends very uncertainly. Yeah. And there was... Yeah, I didn't even pick up on some of the things that uh, Jim was trying to go for, apparently. Because when he was talking about it in the commentary, he was mentioning that... So, I think... Uh, Eddie gets... So, Ava goes... Okay, so context. Uh, Ava goes on a walk on the beach while the guys are out at the ponies and accidentally gets a huge sum of money for a drug deal when she's mistaken for the dealer because she's accidentally wearing the exact same thing that the dealer is supposed to be wearing. And so she goes back to the apartment, leaves some money for the boys, and decides to just go home because uh, America has not been treating her that well. say, not even just like to the house she was at before but like all the way home all yeah, the like way home back to hungary but she she goes to the airport and she's just like uh she talks to the the attendant uh the the person the per, the person who gives the flight tickets flight the seller f- man flight seller man and what, he's like you what, can get what on is a that plane position called in 45 minutes and i was like wow Wow! Just imagine that world. world. And uh, the the boys get back from the racetrack and find the stuff, and they decide that they're going to go after her and try and stop her. Meanwhile, Avis decided to just not, and she goes back to the apartment to see them. (laughs) And so Eddie gets on the plane to try and catch up with Ava, and accidentally winds up getting sent back to Hungary. That's the implication, at least. That, well, according to Jim, that is what happens. Okay. Right. That that's the intended right. meaning. Okay. Yeah. So like, obviously, like the way it's framed is set up to make you think that. But like, I was like, we don't like see him like while well, I'm on the plane now. But yes. obviously, that was yeah, because filming the on the plane would have cost a lot exactly. more than yeah, they right, had. Right, right. Yes. But uh, I'm just being like, it's not like in the text so much, but it is like it's you, there. You, you get yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I felt the need that's to a good bring point, it up, though. but yeah. 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 And it is a good point. I was like, he could have just like in that shot, just walked up all of a sudden and been like, Eddie, what are you doing? And he just does, was like, what? Like, it does assist the, that interpretation. Like yeah, it, yeah. it gives you that room, which mm-hmm. is a, an important thing to note. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. part of the art still. Yes, there Whether is not no intended. true meaning. So yes. if Hunter, you want to believe that it, it didn't get on the plane, you, you can't believe that. <laughs> yes. I think it makes I'm it funnier games. that we never see it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it adds to the sense of uncertainty because all of the characters are left at the end alone and isolated from each other. And you're like, yeah, what do they do now? Like, they came into some money uh, and then it didn't fix any of their problems. They're still... <laughs> 
listless and have no idea where they're going going mm-hmm. forward you know yeah it's still all garbage <laughs> it's still life yeah you congration you done it mm-hmm. yeah and it's also interesting <laughs> to know for um for willie that he's the one that ends up on that plane back to hungry mm. because he's also the one that's so like gung-ho about uh i'm you know in america now don't mm-hmm. don't speak hungarian don't talk to me in any of that crap talking mm-hmm. english we're in america yep. he's like yeah. he's got this idea that he wants to live out a quote-unquote american dream and doesn't really want to accept the idea that it isn't a real thing and um, he and has kind of rejected his heritage and his yeah. past and his family in a lot of ways and so for him to be the one that ends up on that plane is also mm-hmm. kind of you dramatic know, irony funny mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's 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 such a weird thing, and I the whole energy of the movie. I, I think the best part of the movie for me is when they're just driving. The middle section of the movie is mostly to them just driving around and like mm-hmm. going through places, stopping at those train tracks, and just I like that bit on the train tracks. Apparently, they actually specifically chose that location so they could film while a train was going by, but it ruined their audio, so they didn't use that take. <laughs> Uh, that's great and i it's just it's so interesting because apparently uh i i love watching director commentaries and stuff because you sometimes i tend to at least put creators up on pedestals as if they're like just so much smarter than all of us that they're able to make this thing that mattered and made such an impact but like jim jarmish just goes off and is like, yeah, I never use storyboards. I never used storyboards. I just kind of figure it out when I get there. And I just kind of pick my people and we just shoot. And if they have ideas, we just try those ideas. And we just make it work. And it's so unpretentious. Like for how pretentious Mm -hmm. Jim Jarmusch fans can be, I don't think Jim (laughs) Jarmusch is that pretentious. He's just... Kind of someone who wants to make a thing and figures out how to make it happen. Exactly. That's actually one thing that I I would say that that might be like the third thing that I love most about him is the, is just how much it seems like he's just kind of a guy, just a dude. Like the, there's there's no. It's it's very hard to put the artist on a pedestal unless you're so extremely disconnected from from knowing anything about him or his process or unless you've seen all of his movies because if you've seen all of his movies it's really hard to have any sense of of him being this like pretentious like asshole director who you know thinks he knows everything like he's he's really just a dude that I mean, what is that quote that he said? Like, I just want to make movies with my friend. I, I want to make stupid movies with my friends or something. It's like, that's that's his thing. But, yeah. it, but it's unusual, and I didn't really like it. That means it's India. pretentious. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's so It's so interesting how he managed to be as influential as he is. And I think actually have a pretty solid place if you're talking about the 100 essential films just just in the sense that he kind of in large part started a lot of this kind of modern indie wave that we have now 
like a lot of directors yeah. that I really appreciate and, and that I watch that are making films now are like, I didn't really think that I could make movies like this. I didn't think that I was one that like someone that could even make movies until I saw Strangers in Paradise. And that's what gave me that interest. And that what was so exciting and interesting about that to people was how not constructed it, it is. I think that's a big part of why it didn't land for me the first time because when this movie came out, there weren't other movies doing what it was doing, but it became Jim Jarmusch's style and his films and everything became so influential going forward that you see so many movies now that are just like kind of doing this, like movies where you just have People, you have actors who are actors, but they just seem like people who just go through life. And there isn't like big dramatic Hollywood plot beats and there isn't big structures or payoffs or or anything other than just life happening. And it feels even more unorganized than even... Italian neorealism where they were trying to capture that when when I watch Bicycle Thieves I, I, I watch it and it seems like the people are fairly eloquent and put together <laughs> and then you go to Stranger Than Paradise and people are just kind of mumbling through scenes like they're like eating crackers and smoking cigarettes while watching sports and like old B movies and and without and, the Italian neorealism depression and yeah, <laughs> a very different sort of like New York City depression. Yes. And I think both of those movies are going for similar things, but the way that those movies feel so different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, like there is something to the stillness in a lot of this movie. Like a lot of more modern uh, movies of this type have a lot more handheld and mm-hmm. feel a lot more shaky off the cuff. Um but, you know, it, it was... I, Jim Jarmus said he was trying to keep to some of the elements of, like, old classic filmmaking uh, where you have that um, stillness to it. Like um, the guy who made uh, Pickpocket and uh, Balthazar Hazu... Uh, I don't remember Mm -hmm. the name of that. Mm -hmm. Darn. The one on Letterbox with the donkey on the cover. You know the one. The the fancy pretentious looking one. one. Yeah. uh, Shoot. I I forget. I have such a poor memory for names. It takes me like Um, a billion times to actually remember names. Oh, Brisson? Brisson. Yeah. So it was Brisson and... uh, Shoot. Who's the other one? Uh, There are a couple of filmmakers who are just, you know, classic filmmakers they he's drawing on that have a lot more of that stillness to their work mm. um mm-hmm. the the guy who did passion of joan of arc was another influence dryer dryer yes uh yeah and i i honestly see a lot of that there i mean mm-hmm. i think both of those uh directors i i really enjoy the way they use close-ups which this movie doesn't stranger in the paradise doesn't use at all and I, I feel that's where the life of those movies come from, like in Passion of Joan of Arc, where you're just like looking deep into people's faces uh, through most of it. That's like, you're like 
gazing into people's eyes through most of that movie or uh pickpocket where you get like the movie is still and then you have just phenomenal scenes where you're just getting the granular details of like the action of stealing just being completely over completely overtaking the viewer through the eye of the camera like it has so much like energy and stuff in the in the close-up shots and here it's all like restrained like we're seeing everyone from a distance we spend a lot of the time just looking at people from the backseat of a car or from like halfway across their apartment and in mm-hmm. just these like these shots that just sit mm-hmm. there you just watch them and then you cut to black and you're just thinking about the last shot and then a new shot comes up and it, it's just it's it's a very unique thing I, i'm not entirely sure how much i love love everything that it's doing and how much i personally need it but there is a bunch there that i really like yeah it's almost like somehow i feel like his movies don't require people to like them (laughs) in a weird way yeah it's like the people in your guidance counselor who's just like you just need confidence like this movie just has confidence it doesn't care what you think it's just like here i'm a movie like if you don't like like i legitimately don't think jim jarmusch cares at all if somebody likes his movie or not i i think he thinks it's kind of cool but like that's it that's like the end he's like yeah oh you like it nice (laughs) but you could tell he's the kind of guy that he's like in the editing room and he's like oh yeah yeah and that's it and he doesn't think about it anymore yeah apparently he is like for how collaborative he is he's pretty hands-on like he's like i'm in the editing room i'm working with the actors trying to figure out exactly how much like what works for them like Mm -hmm. uh he's oh i love it every time i hear a director being like yeah i do rehearsals like before the camera's running like especially in the days of film that's that was a big mm. thing but now in the age of digital where it doesn't cost anything to leave stuff running uh i don't think people like rehearse enough honestly like in plays you rehearse for months to see it once live and in movies you have like a run through of the blocking and and honestly it you you have to be a really good actor to just nail things in movies. Like you have to spend so much time working through everything because you don't have all that time to build up chemistry and figure out like what each moment needs if you don't give it time to rehearse and spend time rehearsing. And I think that's the way that you get the best performances out of actors. Mm-hmm. Giving them time to like work through chemistry and and stuff. And things. Yeah. No, that's just I don't know. I think it's it's a different way to approach things than a lot of other people have. And it's fun. And if you don't like it, yeah. I I'm just saying. Jim Jarmish did rehearsals. Uh Sydney Lamet does rehearsals. Good directors rehearse. you can do it. It's fine. Now you know. Indeed. Now we know. Now we know. 
Do we have any more thoughts on Stranger Than Paradise? You know, a, I don't I think a, I do. I For some reason, think. I feel like this one is a, is a movie that, like, I don't know. It's nice. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's up there for me. It's Jarmish. It's my favorite. And I don't feel like I need to try to wax poetic about why it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I feel t- like it speaks for itself. While we were talking about other movies that sort of feel like this and may have had a similar style, it reminded me that the, there is perhaps textual appreciation for Tokyo Story in this movie. Oh, yeah. They're like, mm. wow, Tokyo Story's out there. They're like, that's pretty good. <laughs> that movie just it's keeps like, coming back. Oh. Last week, I had my aunt tell me a story that seemed like it was exactly that one scene from Tokyo Story. <laughs> like, my grandpa came over to, like, visit her after uh, uh, my aunt and uncle moved. And he's like, I'm just going to go out with some friends and drink at <laughs> night. And... Th- uh, it played out like almost exactly like that scene of like the old dude in Tokyo story going out with his pals and getting drunks. That's actually really funny. Uh, that movie lives forever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right. I don't know. It's a charming little movie. It's good. And I like it. And it makes me laugh sometimes. And it feels very warm. Mm-hmm. Even when it's snowing. And it's then a nice looking out place of movie, o- over, even though it's depressed. Yes, looking over the frozen lake, being like, "Wow, <laughs> look at it, <laughs> look at it." And I laugh. You laugh. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm done. Uh, we we are done with the podcast this Yay. week. Uh, Hunter can start scrounging for a quote. Uh, see, I I'm having a hard time. The only quote I'm thinking of is coming from. Jim Jarmusch's student film. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that that movie has one of my favorite <laughs> quotes of all time quote. in it. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. What's the quote? Come on. Uh, this gun is my legislative branch. Oh, yeah. um, let me see if I can... Maybe I can do a quote this week. Yes. Wow. Okay. So you look through it. Uh, meanwhile, you at home can find us on the socials if you want to stay connected (laughs) you can uh subscribe to our podcast follow us online uh we post podcasts at regularly irregular intervals Uh uh we're pretty good here we just kind of chill out uh talk about movies because we never see each other anymore just a little it's, it's a good reason to get together to hang out Okay, my quote is the only quote that you could possibly bring from this movie. Okay, go. I'm choking the alligator. (laughs) Aren't we all choking that alligator? I love that bit so much. That's a good Uh, bit. And this has been a good podcast. See you all next week. Bye-bye. See ya.